0: Today I'm bringing you the first of several bonus episodes I recorded with some other podcast friends of the show, and all of them on The Transfiguration. Because, in case you didn't catch my tone of hysterical excitement or repeated reminders in the first episode of Season 6 of Queen of the Sciences, I've written a book on The Transfiguration. Seven ways of looking at The Transfiguration. It's currently live on Kickstarter and already wildly outstripping my hopes and dreams. So please either click the link in the show notes or Google Kickstarter Transfiguration Sarah Henlicky Wilson and it will pop right up and then you can join the fun. Or if you want a little more of a sneak peek into what theological delights await you, have a listen to this episode of Crackers and Grape Juice, where we discuss all things Transfiguration. All right,
1: Sarah, uh, welcome back to Repeat the podcast. Repeat offender. It's good Very to see you.
0: excited about this. <laughs> uh,
1: so you are here to talk about a book project you are launching uh, this month called Seven Ways of Looking at the Transfiguration, a new book. That's right. One of your taglines is celebrities from the past. I think that's great. Um, <laughs> and you have a claim in your tagline, too. An event as important as Christmas or Easter. So I, I want you to start there because that's a, that's a bold a to make.
0: That's right. That's right. Well, <laughs> let me give you the, uh, the uh, um, less glorious start to this whole project, which is that uh, I... On the church year that I follow, we have Transfiguration Sunday, always as the last Sunday of the Epiphany season, so three days before Ash Wednesday. I actually didn't know until I started working on this that that was a Lutheran innovation. You'd think I would have known that, but I didn't. No, oh, and didn't now know a lot of mainline Protestant churches do it because it's in the revised common lectionary, um, which comes out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catholics usually have it annually on the second Sunday of Lent for similar reasons, but there is an ancient annual festival on August 6th. Anyway, so when I came back to congregational ministry and started preaching every year, I think I was pretty excited. The first time Transfiguration came again came around, and then the second year I was like, oh yeah, Transfiguration. Okay, I can say another thing about Transfiguration. By the third year, I was like, I think I'm running out of ideas. And by the fourth year, I was like, I have nothing left to say. But how how can it be that this transfiguration thing comes up every year and actually now that i look at it it seems humongously important in the whole jesus story and yet no one ever talks about it i mean you get i mean endless stuff on christmas incarnation endless stuff on easter resurrection but transfiguration it's there every year and no one really knows except that it's what you tell campers at the end of the week when they're super sad about (laughs) going home again and they're like you have to come down off the Uh, mountain we can't nail it down here forever that's how you've always heard it right
1: well, and that's the perfect segue from my comment that uh, the Transfiguration texts are like ground zero for the worst moralistic <laughs> preaching in the history Oh,
0: tell the me church. more. I'm interested to hear that. I, mostly what I heard, I hear what? is supersessionism, camp, and Peter's an idiot. But tell me how you get moralistic stuff out of
1: it. Uh, oh, just, just uh, 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 it's, it's a variation mm-hmm. on the camp theme, you know, that we can't we can't abide on the mountaintop in glory it, it's more important to follow jesus back down into oh, the valley
0: oh okay okay uh, so it's it's that kind of thing like get back to the hard work don't try to don't try to enjoy these religious kicks without yeah. earning it all right way mm-hmm. to go methodists that mm-hmm. seems about that seems about right yeah <laughs> we we tend to just stick with the supersessionistic reading so, you know that's our lutheran forte
1: so it is the the climax of the season of epiphany a season of glory uh, so what is it in this scene that we should take away that you think is as important as the nativity or?
0: The well, I can tomb? tell you about it's going to take a little bit of doing to get there. I assume that's okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. So yeah. I think the first thing to notice is that you, is that the image of the transfigured Christ and the image of the risen Christ tend to be conflated in our mind. And that probably has a lot to do with paintings. So we think, you know, what, and the way I actually, always preached on this before, before he started doing this project is like, Oh, the transfiguration is a sneak peek of the risen Jesus. Like, and you know, it comes right after Mm -hmm. a passion prediction, which actually is still very important, but it seems to be like, okay, you've heard the cross is coming, but don't worry, there'll be a resurrection on the other side of it. And so the transfiguration (laughs) is like fortifying them to get through, you know, Holy Week Mm and Golgotha and all that. But then you start looking more closely at how the transfigured Jesus is depicted and how the risen Jesus is depicted. And it seems to me the evangelists are going out of their way to distinguish the two from one another. So for instance, the risen Jesus um, is in dazzling white clothing, right? Uh, all three, all three evangel- synoptic evangelists agree on that. But in the resurrection stories, Jesus is not in white clothing. In fact, they go out of the way to make the messengers at the tomb be dressed in white clothing, as as if sort of like throwing it in your face. No, this is not like the transfiguration. Or another thing, um, Matthew and Luke both have Jesus' face altered and radiant, but clearly (laughs) there is no radiance of the risen Jesus. Third, the transfigured Jesus is eminently recognizable. It's not like they thought he was Moses or he was Elijah. But in all the resurrection stories, there is real trouble recognizing Jesus at first. And clearly it's not because like he's some sort of monster or angel. He's a human person, but there's some sort of blockage in recognition. And of course, the transfigured Jesus is continuously present in the whole story and present to the companions. There's no sort of like restoration that takes place. Also in the transfiguration, the father speaks from heaven as he does at the baptism, but there's no voice from the father ever in the resurrection stories, which for the first time really struck me is that um, uh, if if you think about when when does God actually speak from heaven, baptism, transfiguration, Mm -hmm. not at the resurrection at all. And also, in the transfiguration, God comes in the form of the cloud. There are no clouds in the resurrection, though interestingly, there are uh, in Luke's depiction of the ascension in Acts 1, when Jesus is being taken up into heaven. So if you look add these things all up together and what we're saying is actually the transfiguration cannot possibly be a preview of the resurrection something else is going on here there seems to be slightly more connection to the ascension but to just make the transfiguration a preview of the resurrection misses what's going on
1: that's good that's good (laughs) so what is going on
0: okay so now we're going to find out why peter is not such a big idiot after all he is mistaken but not because he's a moron (laughs)
1: It's – the only exegetical insight I have that I can recall from having preached on these texts um, is that this is the only – this is the only instance in the Gospels when someone says something to Jesus and he doesn't reply. Yeah,
0: that's another thing. Jesus is silent in the transfiguration. And otherwise, he's always talking, (laughs) you know, in his ministry but also in his resurrection.
1: so so, so – so if Peter is absolutely wrong, Jesus misses an opportunity to Yeah, which he does not
0: Satan. refrain from doing on other occasions. <laughs> 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 okay. So I'd say probably even before I had this like preaching problem with transfiguration, I've always been sort of hung up on Peter's offer, you know, to to, the offer to build three booths, a skene in Greek, which can mean tent or booth or tabernacle. It translates all three words from like the Septuagint version of the old Testament. And it's just so weirdly specific. And so the way I'd always heard or read (laughs) it was like, it's, it's basically like nailing it down, routinizing the glory, capturing the courage, Charisma. It's like, you know, it's already early Catholicism happening, trying to institutionalize the, you know, unstoppable charisma, this kind of thing. And, um, you know, P- Peter does get things wrong a lot, but why does he make that specific offer and why is it wrong? So it was great doing this kind of following this trail of the, um, the Greek from the New Testament back into how the Septuagint uses the Greek and thinking more seriously about it. I was like, oh, booths. Like, Festival of booths? Is that what's going on here? So actually, you start looking into what the... All right, so here, um, I'm giving part of the story away. I'm I'm not going to tell you everything (laughs) here because I want people to go to my Kickstarter and back (laughs) my book. But I can tell you this much, for sure. Which is that um, there are three pilgrimage festivals in uh, ancient Israel, which were still being practiced in Jesus' day. And that they are Passover, of course, Pentecost... Uh, Shavuot or weeks, and then Sukkot or booths. And I think for very obvious reasons, Passover as an interpretive lens for Jesus has completely overtaken Christian interpretation. I mean, it's like the one thing you can be sure that Christians will actually know about Jewish practice is that they have a Passover and it's connected to getting out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea and everything, right? And Jesus is the Passover lamb. We got that one covered. But the festival of booths, I mean, who really knows anything about booths? So in the the way the, the, these three pilgrimage festivals, and of course there are lots of other festivals like the day of atonement. That's the book of Hebrews obsession, but the, that's not what we're looking at here. These three pilgrimage festivals, which take you to Jerusalem, which of course is really important for the Jesus story, the third and final one of the year. And the third, the final one always listed in the way the Torah talks about it is Sukkot or the festival of booths and the, by Jesus time, um, especially, but already you can see it developing across the Old Testament. Booths is an eschatological festival. It is a celebration that takes place Mm -hmm. after the harvest. So Pentecost is the very beginning of the harvest, But Sukkot is the end of the harvest. And so you build build these fragile structures, which often happens in agricultural settings where you go out so you can just live with the harvest because, you you know, you have to get it all in really fast at the end there, probably to protect thieves from taking your ripe watermelons (laughs) and stealing them away. And um, but it developed with prophetic readings from Zechariah and so forth to talk about God's final harvest that will gather the whole people in all of Israel, all the exiles, but also all the nations, that they will finally come. And even Zechariah has, uh, I have to say, put in a quite threatening language that... All the nations must come to Jerusalem and observe the festival of booths, because in a sense, that's all the nations coming to God and being harvested by God. So, you know, Zechariah likes to put it meanly. Jesus puts it maybe a little more nicely, but it's the same same idea here of the final eschatological gathering of everything. So it seems to me that what's going on when Peter offers to build booths is that by seeing the transfigured Jesus, he is seeing the eschatological arrival of the final thing. And this would be especially desirable to Peter because what happened right before is Jesus for the first time says, who do you say that I am? They, Peter correctly guesses, you are the Christ, which, of course, at the time would have meant the eschatological arrival of redemption. When the Christ comes, it's all over. The suffering is done. We get the kingdom back, right? That's what Peter thought the Christ was going to be. Jesus has to inform him, well, actually, there's a little bit more to it than that. The Christ is going to suffer and die. Peter hates that so much. He tries to teach Jesus better Then we get get behind me, Satan. And so Jesus is preparing them for him to go take the leading role in Passover, not as Moses or Pharaoh, but as the sacrificial lamb. And then immediately from that, we get into the transfiguration story. Peter now, after being so alarmed by this, gets to see a transfigured Jesus, a glorious Jesus, an evidently eschatological Jesus, and goes, whew, He was just kidding about that Passover stuff. He doesn't have to die. He's already here. He's already glorified. Of course, let's build booths and set, settle the fact or celebrate the fact that we have come to the end. We are at the harvest, and of course." that is not correct though. Jesus is because it is, uh, I think what we're seeing here is a preview of the eschatological Jesus, not the risen Jesus. And maybe that's why, uh... Uh, the, the evangelists nightly say that he was sleepy or was terrified, but Jesus himself doesn't rebuke him so badly because Peter is like half right. I think we should actually give him credit for seeing correctly the eschatological Jesus. The only problem was that he thought he got to skip over Passover and he doesn't get to sk- skip over Passover. Jesus has to become the Passover lamb before he can become the final, the, uh, the Sukkot Lord who gathers in the last harvest
1: that's really good and and that that accounts for the the connections the image has to the ascension
0: right right right, right. yeah so i would say one of the reasons why yeah. then to get back to your initial question why is transfiguration as important as christmas and easter well the thing is and i you know i have to say i probably avoided thinking in some ways about an eschatological Jesus because I'm an American and that has been done real bad, <laughs> right? And uh, this this book really forced me to see how important the second coming of Christ is to the New Testament. I'm sure a certain kind of listener will find it comical that I could have avoided it so long. And I'm sure it was fairly deliberate because I despised dispensationalism with every fiber of my being. But nevertheless, you know, I, even even apart from dispensationalism, of course, I believe in a second coming and that the the final harvest has not taken place yet we're still in in between times awaiting the final confirmation of our faith and and that's much clearer to me now but there's no to me there's no really obvious place in our church calendar where we celebrate the let's say, the Sukkot Lord, the eschatological Lord. Um, the closest I can think of is Christ the King, which many churches now celebrate as the last Sunday of the church year. But that is really recent. That's from the 1920s. It was probably originally, mm-hmm. on the one hand, an, an anti-fascist move, on the, an anti-modernist move on the part of the Catholic Church where it started. And also, it was originally scheduled to fall on the Sunday before All Saints, which uh, people might realize is always going to be a Reformation. Sunday if you're a Protestant. So it probably started out also as a rival to the Protestant observances. And then with liturgical renewal in the 60s, it was moved to its current place as the last Sunday of the church year. And at that point, Protestants were very happy to accept it. And that's kind of an eschatological Jesus. Though now, of course, because everybody hates King language, it causes its own sort of problems. But where otherwise do we really talk about the the final Jesus, the Jesus of the end of all things in terms of the observance of the church calendar. It's always kind of like off to the side, but never the central thing. And so it occurs to me, I think transfiguration, even though it comes so early in the story, it is the preview of the end. And that's why it it needs a a kind of prominence to draw attention to these themes that otherwise, I think we tend to think the risen Jesus is like the end of the story. But uh, of course, for the the New Testament, mm-hmm. like you know, yep. that's what launches the next phase of a very as yet uncompleted story.
1: Yeah, and and like you're helping me see that. So, so the Jesus who appears in glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's a lot of correspondence then to how he's first seen by by John the the Revelator at yes. the beginning of Revelation. Yes. Then, too, absolutely. Um, that that I don't know that
0: anyone ever does. Right. Anything and you know there are, there are there's so many white robes <laughs> across Revelation and at that point mm-hmm. because he is the the you know uh, we're seeing in him the the final eschatological lord he can dress lots of other people in white robes. It's it's something that that's shared across the way. Also a very cool thing early in Revelation maybe I just heard this on your podcast, right? I just heard it. Someone else pointing out that you, in, in Revelation, it says you see the voice. John sees the voice of the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, yeah. I mean, that, that actually is also the transfiguration story. You are seeing the voice of the mm-hmm. Lord. So you hear the voice of the father from heaven by seeing the transfigured Lord that there's like clearly a, uh, all, the transfiguration has a lot of transference of identity between father and son taking place there and pulling together the, the visual altered appearance of Jesus, with the tremendousness of the voice, and of course, the voice is hugely important across both testaments as well.
1: And so that um, that eschatological interpretation of the Transfiguration allows you then to go back and make connections to the Old Testament that are Christological, that don't necessarily need to be exactly. supersessionist Exactly. Right. Like you can like, oh, well, like he looks, he looks like the son of man is he Or Daniel.
0: Right. Both. Yep. 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 Yeah. And, um, and so also then like this made me completely reread the Exodus story. I mean, I'm sorry, not the Exodus story, the entire book of Exodus, the entire narrative of Exodus, what you see, and I never got this before is how closely intertwined God's self-revelation Through his name and the cloud and his voice is with the Passover, not only in it being told as an as an action story, but the continued charges to Israel to observe the festival of the Passover or of unleavened bread, always with reference to the blood of the lamb. So, in a sense, the the way God reveals Himself through again these voice cloud tremendousness things going on here is so bound up with this pass this Passover self revelation here. so I don't think I, there, there. Is, uh, I, don't, I don't even know how to <laughs> now. Now that I've I've crossed the line to see that the New Testament is utterly incomprehensible without the Old Testament, it's almost hard for me to get back to. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've been working at this for a long time, but it's just so deep in Christian DNA to try to look at the New Testament and ask in a kind of generalized abstract way, well, how can blood pay for sins? As if there's like some free floating theorem, like mathematics out there that would explain that. It was like, (laughs) if you want to know why you have to read Leviticus or you have to read Exodus, they will tell you why blood atones for sins, but you cannot get anything like a meaningful answer if you try to do it apart from the Old Testament. And that of course is why reading Moses and Elijah as there to like, you know, show these are the law and the prophets, but Jesus is better. Um, and so much, unfortunately of the revised common lectionaries pairings, I mean, you have to actually train preachers not to preach super but a lot of the ways they're set up, is kind of like the old Testament did it okay, but Jesus does it better again and again and again, Hebrews is partly to blame for that, but that's a separate conversation.
1: Oh, no, you're speaking (laughs) my love language now. Um... But um, um, that was I shouldn't have said that. I just lost my train of thought. Um, uh, so um, so, so one of the things I was thinking about recently is that uh, in Exodus is a good example, right? That the the Old Testament has these ways of describing the presence and movement of God um, among the people, where um, there is God like the voice, um, but also this other that is not the, you know, not the same, but Mm -hmm. is is also God. Um, So, so there's this, there's this kind of latent incarnational pre-Trinitarian stuff um, that should be, that should be grist for Jewish Christian dialogue, but because of the ways we, preach and read and interpret supersessionistically uh there's not a lot of Jews interested in <laughs> having these right. conversations well and us. also
0: i've noticed that when christians suddenly start to see the problem then they think the right answer is to stop interpreting the old testament in a christian way at all and yeah. like Admittedly, yeah, you exactly, can you exactly, can. Read. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and this is this is where Luther finally goes off the rails because at some point for him it becomes so obvious that the Old Testament is pointing towards Christ and the Gospel mm-hmm. that anyone who doesn't get it is not not just ignorant but spiritually blind. So there there is a danger on either side is refusing to interpret the Old Testament because you think it's you know lesser inferior the work of the the false God like Marcion would say, but you can also say it's so obvious that you can then make make Jews into basically devils so how to, how to historic get between these historic errors I think is still um, not at all clear and I just would like to say for the record i I don't blame Jews for not trusting Christians when we want to try to have this conversation we have to earn our, no. our trustworthiness yeah. on this as well but you're you're a big Jensen fan have you read his Ezekiel commentary? he talks a lot about the spirit of the Mm -hmm. Lord and the hand of the Lord as these two presences of the Lord. And, and that kind of threeness that's happening already there. I thought that was fantastic. And, you know, the amazing, the, the only, as far as I'm concerned, redeeming scene in Joshua, where he meets this, this figure who is somehow the presence of the Lord and says, are you for me or for my enemy? And he just says, no. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And I'm just like, that has to be Jesus saying right now, no, I'm going to die for everybody who is involved in this horrible conflict. And I'm going to take responsibility for whatever violence is perpetrated for my people Mm -hmm. and in my name.
1: That's good. Yeah. And, and you said earlier, um, so a lot of preachers and Christians will say you can't understand the new Testament without the old, but what invariably what they mean is this is the necessary background material to understand yeah. the main material, which is not at all how the old Testament functioned. No, it's just like a church. foil
0: or like the setup for the punchline, but it doesn't have any, any real heft in its own right. And it, it is usually the, you know, the shadow uh, with, with and the, the reality or the type and the anti-type. These, these are, And I mean, you can tell they're all trying to get at something and it's not entirely clear always how to do it right. But so I think like, so for instance, with with Moses and Elijah, like what are they doing there? And why why is it those two celebrities from the past as opposed to any of the others? And the way I usually have heard it said is that they represent the law and the prophets. And then clearly Jesus is better than both the law and the prophets, right? Or like they they kind of bow down to him like Joseph's brothers bowing down to him. It's
1: it's the yeah, it's it's the perfect caricature of everything exactly exactly,
0: and I'm sure we we've shared the wealth by now, so it's perpetrated in other places as well. But well, (laughs) so the thing, one thing I discovered again in in working on this is that um that that might be something Christians say, but at the time Moses and Elijah would not have been seen as obviously representing the law and the prophets. First of all, because Moses is remembered. Moses is remembered as the prophet par excellence. Deuteronomy 18: The Lord will raise up for mm-hmm. you a prophet like me, and you you will you shall listen to him. Which, of course, is what um, the Father says from heaven at the end of the Transfiguration scene: Listen to him. So it's alluding back to that. But Moses has a much better qualification to be thought of as prophet. And I think again for Christians to automatically call moses the lawgiver. i mean obviously moses is quite tightly associated with the law but even to say that he's the lawgiver well god is the law giver and moses is the means the <laughs> mediator by which the law is given but it's not like coming from him so i think moses is more like the prophet and then elijah interestingly when
1: which is like a i mean that's a subtle i never thought about that before but like that's a subtle way of distancing um It's a subtle way of implying that the law is is something other than the word of God. Well, and
0: okay, so if you read (laughs) only Galatians, apart from what Paul goes on to do later, you can kind of get it from there. You can see Paul doing a little bit like, well, the angels... Mm Whatever gave the law, so he's trying to create a buffer. And you can see, like, once I yeah, sort yeah, of figured yeah. out the relationship of Galatians and Romans, I realize that Paul himself realized, okay, you know, in in the specific case, yeah, he was overstating the case because of the specific problem in Galatia <laughs> by Romans. He has, of course, his most mature thought on that, which finds the you know for him the way to reintegrate both the law and Israel into this whole plan without superseding either. But if you just read Galatians without that kind of trajectory of Paul's thought and mind you, you can do that kind of distancing move too and of course it's been very convenient when you have a Christian religion versus Jewish religion you know battle taking place that then of course takes on political overtones as well so anyway but then in the case of Elijah um To call Elijah a a representative prophet, again, is a bit misleading. He's actually, he is called a prophet a few times in the stories about him, but he's more often called the man of God. And he's often like meeting with cohorts Mm -hmm. of prophets who might be working for God, but might be working for Baal. And of course he has no book named after him. So like in the writing, this collection of writings that are called the prophets, there is no Elijah there at all. So in that case, well, so... I didn't explain what Moses is doing there. So if Moses is not there uh, as uh, the lawgiver, primarily, of course, there's this prophet like me quality to him. But also, I think the most obvious thing is that Moses goes up on a mountain and is transfigured so um, it's not, we don't get any impression from the story that Jesus' transfiguration is better than Moses' transfiguration, but it's it's more, I think, like a sense-making apparatus of what it means to be in the presence of the Lord and have, and, and Jesus also is entirely passive in the transfiguration story. That's also something interesting to uh, maybe correct um, not only moralistic sanctification, but moralistic Christology. Like Jesus is not the active agent in the transfiguration. He's entirely the passive recipient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. much like Moses is the, the passive recipient of God's action that leads to his transfiguration. And then for Elijah, he also ascends the mountain. Actually, Moses and Elijah are the only two people who ascend to the top of Mount Sinai slash Horeb in the Old Testament. So clearly the mountain of transfiguration is not Sinai. It's way too far away. So it can't possibly be that, but it's it's alluding to that. Yeah, but yeah. probably, I, so I think what's probably going on in the Elijah story is it's, it's plugging into this subplot of John the Baptist in the gospel stories. And then Luke extends it into Acts as well. So I think that what one of the things Elijah is doing there is trying to establish who Jesus is vis-a-vis both Elijah and John. And another thing I never realized till working on this is that we just take for granted that John is Elijah who is to come, but nobody thought to put the two of them together until Jesus said so. And that's the conversation in Mark coming down off the mountain is the d- disciples are so freaked out by everything that's just been happening from the fashion prediction to the transfiguration to Jesus saying, don't say anything about this until I've risen from the dead. And they're like, what does this mean? Rising from the dead. Let's change the subject. Um, Jesus, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? <laughs> but then if you kind of like track the whole Elijah-John subplot subplot across the Gospels, nobody thinks to put John and Elijah together until Jesus does. Jesus is the one who puts the two of them together. But then in the process, Jesus also corrects the idea that Elijah is the eschatological arrival. So again, this ties back into the eschaton theme that they thought if Elijah came again, then Elijah ushers in the end. You get that from like the Malachi prophecies that are obviously very important here. And Jesus says, well, uh, so the scribes say um, Elijah comes to restore all things. And Jesus says, well, Elijah has come, but does he in fact restore all things or does he in fact suffer like the Messiah also must must suffer? So again, it's kind of like a half and half, like Peter being half and half right about what he sees in the transfigured Jesus. They are right that Elijah has come, but that's John, not Jesus. But they're wrong about the idea that Elijah will instantly restore all things. No, Elijah will suffer just like the Christ will suffer, and then, of course, we know that John gets beheaded because of uh, Herod's rash vow.
1: This eschatological frame is—I um, mean, I've preached on this text a lot, and they were all not; none of them were moralistic. I would not sermons. have expected any less um, of you, Jason. But I, <laughs> but I didn't—I I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. This is good. I, I haven't thought about this and. And that makes sense. Um, you know, often the epiphany season will begin with uh, the wedding at Cana, which is also right. an eschatological um, scene. Uh, so, so maybe there's an intentionality behind these this cycle of readings that has been lost to several yeah. generations. Well, I mean, if you
0: think the whole idea of epiphany, this is Greek language, you know, predating Jesus for the apparition of a god you know, theophany would work just as well. And so all of these are ways in which we're seeing the divinity of Jesus behind the humanity of Jesus or alongside of it or however you want to characterize it. But no, it is funny, especially because, well, not only because we have transfiguration annually in our church calendar or lectionaries, but also it's just the story itself tells you this is really, really important. And yet I just, I found so, I mean, there there are resources out there, obviously did a lot of reading for this, but it just doesn't get anywhere near the level of attention of like the, incarnation with Christmas and the resurrection with Easter or even the pouring out of the spirit and Pentecost and, and all these kind of things. It's just like, it's, but it's just an oddball enough story. And then the fact that speaking of oddballs, second Peter talks about, you know, who loves second Peter? Please raise your hand if second Peter is your favorite epistle of the new Testament. (laughs) Nobody raises their hand. Right. (laughs) So that's.
1: So uh, I mean, I, 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 I I was just thinking about this because I referenced it in a funeral sermon a couple of weeks ago but um so yeah so talk about how um peter looks back on the transfiguration uh as as the significant moment in his 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 right. uh okay vocation. so here's
0: where i'm going to admit that i think that probably second peter was not written by peter
1: I, well i i yeah <laughs> you, you, I just,
0: you can live with that <laughs> I, i'm i
1: i'm at the point where like all like yeah, i just like I. Don't well, you know, care I, in, in a
0: very certain real sense, I don't <laughs> care either because it's canonical. So for me, canonical trumps authorial in some sense. Um, I actually I tend to think that First Peter was probably at least dictated by Peter, if not handwritten by Peter, which is what it says at the end. I think there's there's. I've, I've looked into the evidence that persuades me, but it seems pretty clear that whoever wrote 1 Peter could not have been the same person who wrote 2 Peter and vice versa. And it's because of the appeal to the transfiguration. However, I do think a strong argument can be made that 2 Peter at least stands in the Petrine tradition of the Roman church. So I'm just going to assume that even if he didn't write it down and is writing ego himself to it, whoever is writing it down is, is drawing on Peter's memory. So that's good enough for me. But okay, so what's fun about the 2 Peter passage is that he says that they were were eyewitnesses. This is one of those hopox legomena in uh, the New Testament, opti, like optics. So they actually, with their own eyes, saw what happened. And it's just, it's kind of odd. It it doesn't, again, like the three synoptics have slightly different details. Once again, Second Peter doesn't quite match up. So for instance, he'll talk about splendor and majesty and glory, but he doesn't actually give any visual description, which is really interesting since that's so important to the synoptic accounts. And because it says we were eyewitnesses, but won't say what they witnessed with their eyes, but also it ends with this charge to listen. And it has, um, it specif- Oh, and and then, sorry, I'm so excited. (laughs) I'm tumbling all over my words here. Okay. What's really interesting in second Peter, two things. One is that he specifies that God is father. So that is clearly implicit mm-hmm. in the synoptic accounts, because if somebody is a son, is being addressed as son or pointed out as son, and the person doing it is clearly at least the parent. And of course we know it is meant to be father. And that already in the, synop- in the gospel starts at the baptism. But so in Mark's version though, God is not specified as father until, again, right before the transfiguration. So it's sort of like hearing from heaven that God Mm -hmm. has a son is deeply alarming already. But then the reverse direction that if God has a son, then God must be father is already starting to interfere with kind of the classic doctrine of God. So I sort of feel like Mark is giving you time to sort of adjust to the idea and like like believe, okay, <laughs> can, can Jesus really be God's son? I mean, we have some more generic or royal son language. Maybe it's just that. So once you're kind of like all the way convinced and impressed by Jesus, then he throws the cross at you and then he throws God is father at you. And then we have the transfiguration. But by the time of 2 Peter, this is established because we're not in the live action. We're already looking back on it. So Peter can simply modify God is no longer just God. God is father. And again, Jensenites love this conclusion because you no longer have a simple doctrine of God. You have a Trinitarian doctrine of God unfolding. And then God from, from heaven, when he addresses Jesus, he says, my son, my beloved And um, and actually it uses Mm -hmm. the first person pronoun ego, which is, of course, not necessary most of the time in Greek. So there is this kind of intensification of the father son relationship in Second Peter. But then the crazy thing about this is that in the context of Second Peter, the transfiguration is brought up as Proof for the whole claim of Second Peter, which is very comical because three people saw it. <laughs> so, like, the resurrection is much better attested. We have what, more than 500 people who can claim to have seen the risen Christ? So, why would Second Peter appeal to the transfiguration with all of three eyewitnesses, who of course could just be colluding or making it up or having a mass hallucination? Like, <laughs> why would that be so important well if you look at the whole argument of second peter it's like why hasn't he come back yet that is the concern of second peter it's probably yeah. fairly late among new testament literature when they're really as we've all learned dealing with delayed perusia and the word perusia is right there in the the transfiguration story, the Lord's power in Perusia. Well, so why would you appeal to the transfiguration rather than say the resurrection? If you're making the argument about Jesus' second coming, it's because what's under dispute is not whether Jesus rose from the dead. What's under dispute is whether Jesus will come back again in glory. Will he in fact be the Lord of the eschatological harvest? And in that case, the resurrection doesn't help you, but the transfiguration does. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And
0: probably at the time people, um, well, who knows? I mean, they may have been doubtful. It seems it doesn't seem like there's any doubt about the transfiguration itself in Peter's audience, but I did read that there were all sorts of epiphanic claims kind of circulating in the Hellenistic world. People were were um, doubtful about claims back then Then too. They didn't believe everything mm-hmm. they were told. Uh, in Peter's community, the transfiguration, though, seems to have been believed as true. And so that's, that's why Peter, or whoever's writing in his tradition, can appeal to it to make a parousia, second coming, eschatological argument. And that's why, and not a resurrection type argument.
1: That's really good. That's really good. And, and it made me... Um... it occurred to me. So I I preached through revelation over the summer and it occurred to me. And and so it's, 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 it's the, the photo negative of second Peter. right? (laughs) Nice. um, I like that. That, that, that one of the things that is going on in revelation is it, John overwhelms you with all of these details, almost as a way of avoiding actually identifying what he saw Mm -hmm. when he, when he sees Jesus, you know? So, so it's like, uh, uh, and the same, and so, and then you have the same absence in Second Peter of mm-hmm. visual detail, um, and and in both there's a very Jewish reticence um, to get too close to to, to capturing or naming uh, the glory. And yeah, it's
0: hearkening back again to the opening of Ezekiel. It, it's almost like he's stuttering, trying to put in words, what can't be put into words. He says, yeah. had the appearance of the likeness of a son of a man, you know? And it's just yeah, like yeah, these yeah. repeated, I just call them buffer language, you know, like you have to have several, several removed. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And yeah. that happens mm-hmm. in Daniel as well. So this seems to be a, a, a quality of Jewish apocalyptic is that something, there is something visual about it, but it's, it cannot be put into words and the, putting it into words will will not convey the right thing to you. So by using words, you have to kind of create these like layers of veils or something. And I I think that's probably why second Peter just uses vague terms like splendor or majesty. But doesn't go into more detail. And even interestingly, in the, the synoptic accounts, they're so modest. So like I, I made myself read of all of Ovid's metamorphoses, because the Greek word is is Jesus was metamorphosed. We, we use the, the Latin transfigured, which is, you know, just a translation of metamorphose in, in Greek. But I was struck by how incredibly modest both the transfiguration story, but all biblical miracle stories are so, they actually seem so much more realistic and plausible to me than I ever could have imagined. Like if you have this very positivistic, modern scientific view, they seem impossible. But if you see the kind of claims that were being made in the ancient world for the divine, it's there, there's a kind of stark, um, un, uncompromising realism. So in Mark, it's just Jesus clothes. Matthew says his face shines. Mm-hmm. And then Luke almost is like, oh, Matthew, you went too far. And is like, well, okay, his face is different and his appearance is altered but like doesn't really want to go any farther than that. And Luke even gets rid of the metamorphosed words, probably because being a, a, a high, I'm guessing because of being a high stylist in Greek and very well familiar with the whole span of Greek literature. He's like, yeah, metamorphosed. That's going to give people the wrong idea. Let's just say he looked different, but there's just not that much description of what's going on. Enough to give you the idea. And if you're a, you know a good reader of the scriptures of Israel, you will get the allusions and they are manifold, but you don't really need you, It's funny that the whole point is that Jesus' visual appearance is altered, but the final instruction of the Father is listen to him, not remember what you have seen. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So again, that revelation, I saw the voice. (laughs) I think that really does capture very nicely what's going on here.
1: So why is there no transfiguration scene in the Gospel of John?
0: Great question. Or is there... So I think there are, that John's transfiguration is there, uh, if you can get over the visual part. And I think that is the perfect, uh, you know, next conversation here, since we've just established that the visual part is quite difficult. But if you take two pieces from the synoptic thing, which is the allusion to Sukkot, and then the voice of the father that john has both of those things and there are internal clues that link them so basically in john 7 jesus goes to jerusalem for sukkot mm-hmm. and it's it says like Skane Pegia, the Feast of the Booths, was at hand. Yeah. And there you see the allusions to Zechariah and the rivers of living water. And probably uh, the, the Mishnah records a, a ritual that was taking place in Jerusalem at that time uh, at the Sukkot festival with drawing water. So Jesus is alluding to that. So you have Jesus and the whole kind of Sukkot thing being reinterpreted with reference to himself. Um, and then, um, you jump forward from John seven to John 12, and this is right after his entrance into Jerusalem for, pa- for the final Passover. And, um, they have their palm branches and palms are used in Sukkot, mm-hmm. which, so again, this, is it Passover or Sukkot? I think the, that, that confusion yeah, yeah. that takes place in the synoptic transfiguration is there as well. And then. Some Greeks want to see Jesus, and um, it's escaping my my memory at the moment. But there's some reference to Greeks also in the the Sukkot story. They haven't they haven't come to see Jesus. Oh, I know. They when Jesus says that um, he is going to leave them, they say, "Oh, is he going to the dispersion among the Greeks?" So the next time Greeks are mentioned, it's when the Greeks come. Greeks in quotes come to see Jesus in John 12. That's when Jesus says, "My hour has come," which he told his mother his hour had not come. The Cana story, but now it's come when Greeks yeah. get interested in him. And then he says, now my soul is troubled, but shall I say, let this, will, will this be passed from me? Shall I let ask this to pass from me? And he says, Father, glorify your name. And then for the one and only time in the Gospel of John, the Father in heaven speaks to Jesus and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And so you have the language of father specifying God as father. You have glory, which is an important aspect of the transfiguration story. You have a voice from heaven, which is essential in all three synoptics and in 2 Peter. And then very comically, after this happens, the crowd can't figure out what happened. They have their own kind of incomprehension, just like the disciples do. And it says that some of them say that it had thundered which is very interesting because that Mm -hmm. further points back to the cloud imagery, which the synoptics have, but also James and John, we we, we talk all about Peter, but James and John are there, are there too. Their nickname is sons of thunder. So there's all Mm -hmm. these very interesting like um, word and, and visual imagery overlaps going on between these two stories. So, you know, whatever the relationship between the synoptics and John is, I think, this this kind of um, connected Sukkot story, and then over to the, the the final hour, turning toward you know my hour has come, and uh, for, you know the transfiguration marks also Jesus turning toward Jerusalem. Whatever the reality that lies behind it, I think both the synoptics and John are mapping the same thing in their own distinctive ways of doing it.
1: And and that's consistent with. Like John narrates the passion in a way that that kind of intermingles Yom Kippur and Passover in a rather obvious way too. So 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 that's consistent with like well and. he is yeah and in John
0: uh, Jesus goes for every pilgrimage festival Pentecost is not named by name but there's an unnamed festival in John 5 so let's just assume that's Pentecost and then um, mm-hmm. and then Jesus also goes to Jerusalem for Hanukkah which is not mandated so it's like a super er- super erogation <laughs> going above and beyond that he decides to go for the feast of dedication even though it's not mandated because it's not mentioned in the Old Testament It happens after that uh, I always love to blow people's minds with Hanukkah is mentioned in the New Testament and nowhere in the Old Testament. And of course, translations usually cover that up because they call it Feast of Dedication, which is literally accurate. But, you know, especially if you're, again, an American who grew up, you know, hearing about latkes and kind of wishing you could have a menorah and then to find out Jesus went to (laughs) Jerusalem for Hanukkah in wintertime. I think that was the first time I really grasped that Jesus was a Jew. It's like, what? Oh, Hanukkah. Right. He ate latkes. Of course, he didn't because there were no potatoes in the Middle East at that time. But you you get the point, right? (laughs)
1: and m- menorahs are so much easier i know than they don't
0: Christmas
1: shed <laughs> oh gosh i'd much rather have a menorah uh all right so sarah um i think what is obvious from this conversation is you need to do this amount of work for every <laughs> sunday in the three year lectionary cycle, because I would... Okay, I would
0: well, that, that. that will take me 700 lifetimes, but I, I will I will do my best. I actually, <laughs> uh, working on this, I have suddenly started thinking like, at least Ascension and Pentecost need this level of treatment. Pentecost is not as neglected as Christmas and Easter, but it is, well, supersessionistically read, right? And uh, much misunderstood, and certainly not interpreted as a Jewish pilgrimage festival. You know, I, I, again, I was probably like almost 30 by the time I realized Pentecost was there. <laughs> it was a Jewish holiday before it was a Christian one. Mm-hmm. But also now that I see the transfiguration's connection to the Ascension and the exalted eschatological Jesus, again, Ascension is one of those things like, so what he rocketed up into the sky, you know, is heaven up, you know, and and there, I love, I mean, the 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 artwork is comically wonderful. Durer has this great picture of of jesus little feet dangling at the yep. top of the screen <laughs> but uh yeah I, I might but um i think for now i am uh, take a break from this level of an intensity my brain is kind of blown i need to go back to some slightly more uh, slovenly activities for a while to recover but it's been tremendous fun all
1: right well speaking of this work this so yeah tell people what oh, right. you want them to do because yeah, i'm i'm actually confident they will want to check this okay, out. Okay, great.
0: Well, I am launching this book as a Kickstarter. So if you just go to Kickstarter, or you just you can just Google Kickstarter Sarah Henlicky Wilson Transfiguration, it'll pop right up. I'm sure I can give you the link to put in the show notes for this. But um, yeah, it's running January 16th through 31st. So your window is narrow. So I hope everyone has listened to this episode as soon as it drops. But you can go, and there are various tiers for getting ebook, audiobook, hardcover. Uh, there are various bonus items that can come along with it too. But um, anyway, for those of you who are preachers, especially, Transfiguration is coming up in the Revised Common Lectionary and Church Calendar on February 11th, 2024. And uh, if you're Catholic, you have a slightly greater window of time. It's not till February 25th. But, you know, if you if you want to uh, do something new and exciting with your, your transfiguration preaching, um, this is the time to get it. You will have the book by uh, February 4th. So you'll have a chance to look through it and get started for your transfiguration preaching. And uh, also, but also if you're a lay person and you're always like, what is this transfiguration story? I've written it to be accessible to uh, well-informed Christians. You do not need a seminary education to understand this book. I did that on purpose because I wanted it to be, uh, well, because there just isn't, there aren't many good transfiguration resources out there and they tend to turn into spiritual self-help pretty fast as well. And if you're listening to this episode much, much later after the fact, it will eventually be sale for sale in the usual channels on Amazon and elsewhere. But um, right now, if you are listening live, please go back the Kickstarter
1: um so all right so there's no danger so when i hear kickstarter i hear like oh i need you know this much support right. or it won't happen so well it's, i wrote it, the it will book so happen. i will
0: get it out there eventually but if you if you want it for this <laughs> transfiguration and there are certain okay. uh, formats that are only available here you know i'm doing the uh you know trying trying to give okay. it make it worth your while to to back it now instead of waiting for later but um I well, but yeah, above all, I just had such an amazing one. May even say transfiguring experience of discovering these intense, amazing intercanonical connections. and just like overflowing and effervescent with enthusiasm for the transfiguration, and I want everyone else to be to be similarly intoxicated. So that that's really the main reason to to go for the book. Hmm.
1: Um. Sarah, where oh, can Oh, you can find go you? to
0: sarahenlickywilson.com. That is the landing page for everything else I do, my podcasts and my books, my press, my sermons, articles, whatever you want. Sarah Henlicky Wilson, an H at the end of Sarah. So there's two H's in a row in Sarah Henlicky Wilson.
1: I never knew 23 years ago when you were like obsessed with Harry Potter <laughs> trivia that you would become such a valued voice. in. Was I? In is that head. what you
0: remember of me from seminary? <laughs> Hilarious.
1: I just, I, I remember, I remember like some game with Liz Johnson, and I was like, I, I think I've seen one movie. I, I feel really <laughs> ill equipped to answer any of these That's questions. That's
0: really funny. I, I've often noted, and you probably have too, is what other people remember of us is not what we remember of ourselves. So, mm-hmm. Lord, have mercy on us all.
1: <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm, I'm now, I can probably. Yeah. Jason at 46 can probably beat Sarah at whatever age that was at the Harry right. Potter. Trivia, well, so.
0: let's, that, that can be our next episode then toe to toe, Harry Potter and Christological interpretations thereof. Mm, okay. <laughs> that was a great Facebook. Well, I'm sorry. You couldn't see that. <laughs>